The World Bank was set up in 1944. In the aftermath of the Second World War, the institution was there to give loans to countries rebuilding after the conflict. The first loan went to France, but with stipulations about repayment that set a tone for future funds. In 1999, the BMJ ran a series of articles on the World Bank, authored by our current deputy editor, Cameron Abassi. The article set out the bank's move into funding global health and highlighted some criticisms about its processes. Now, a new series published on bmj.com looks at where the World Bank has come in the last 18 years, how much global health it's funding now, and explaining some of its new models of finance. The series is authored by Devi Shrida and her team from the University of Edinburgh, and the articles will cover the World Bank's turn to universal health coverage, how the bank's trust funds are being used to fund specific projects, and why it's hard to know what those are. Its new global financing facility, that has grants and loans supplied together, and finally, how they're creating a market out of pandemic insurance. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor at the BMJ, and in this first interview, I talked to Devi Sridhar about the series and the bank's move into financing global health. So Devi, thanks very much for joining us for a start. Thank you so much for having me. Um, firstly, we should start by saying, why did you decide to look at the World Bank and, and really go in for this in-depth analysis of, of what it's doing? Yeah, so in global health, there tends to be a lot of focus on the World Health Organization. But actually, what flies under the radar is the World Bank, which those who, who work every day in global health know is basically an institution that's global health on steroids. It combines intellectual prestige and financial power. And so because we felt it was a neglected topic and that actually there hadn't been a lot of analysis done on it since the 1999 series that the BMJ ran with, we wanted to update it with five um, in-depth research papers on various aspects of the bank. Um, and the bank is influential in health for several reasons. First, it works with ministries of finance, which we could say have more influence over what happens in health than ministries of health themselves. Um, second, its support and its technical support is actually based on the premise of a loan package, which means ideas and recommendations on how you should change a country's health sector actually have resources and money accompanying those. So it's not just talk, it's talk with, with money. Um, the third is actually many of co the concepts we use in health, such as um, global burden of disease, disability adjusted life years, cost effectiveness, human capital, terms we hear thrown around came from the World Bank, and many people don't know that history. Um, it works closely with the new players, often holding them, as, as paper um, three of the series looks at, as trust funds, so actually being the financial intermediary of these funds. And finally, there's a vast and very powerful network of people who move in and out of the bank, which means even if you track just the network of people involved, um, they're quite influential. And so for all these reasons, it's a highly interesting institution to look at in more detail. Mm, it's fascinating. And you kind of touched on this here. And you, In your articles, in fact, in all of the articles, um, you say the World Bank's become this major funder of global health. Um, but then at the same time, it, it also has all the other things that it's interested in. It was started to kind of um, 
rebuild after the war. It's now got a place um, in trying to sort of create markets and things. So how does it tie together this kind of global health overview and those other um, hats that it's wearing? Yeah, it's a great question because when the bank first was created, and this was in 1944, post-World War II, it was actually created to fund post-World um, War II reconstruction in Europe. And then it turned into focusing on um, countries, large infrastructure projects in middle and low-income countries. Um, so it wasn't really doing anything in health. Um, even in 1985, it was less than 1% of lending was for health. Um, and even today, it's about 12 you know, 12% in a good year. Um, so it's had this major shift from actually being just a bank focusing on supporting countries in their development efforts to actually being intricately involved with health sector issues, whether it's how do you actually deliver care, how do you actually deal with problems like HIV AIDS or vaccination, um, to now issues around health workers and how do you actually pay them. Um, so it's, an, it, it's, it's grown in importance over the past decades to where it is today. And, um, you know, that bit specifically about, say, markets, I mean, it's always using financial levers to get its its global health agenda sort of taken up. Yes, I mean, it is a bank, and that's something that often is easy to forget because much of the work done in the health, nutrition, and population portfolio is done for reasons um, that are for improving people's health across the world, but actually the logic and the justification has to be economic. There has to be a return on lending. It has to increase productivity or it has to lend itself to economic growth. So in a sense, fundamentally, it is a bank which has an economic economic paradigm um, and economics, economists are dominant within it. Um, at the same time, it's aiming to do areas like universal health coverage, which are premised on the right to health and everyone having access to health care. So there is an interesting tension there between those two mandates. Mm. And I think, you know, for people listening, it's worth listening to the other podcasts in this series because they go into that in a little bit more detail. Um, but I wanted to turn now to the current president, who's um, Jim Kim. Uh, he was one of a number of voices that was critical of the way the World Bank was involved in, in global health um, and other <laughs> development things uh, before that, before his tenure started. Um, can you sort of take us through some of the criticisms that he had? Yeah, so President Jim Kim um, um, worked on a book called Dying for Growth, and the main argument that was made in that was that actually economic measures and economic growth were seen, was seen as more important than actually improving people's lives. And a lot of this is tied to what happened in the 1980s and 1990s, where the bank promoted market-based solutions and the privatization of healthcare problems, including delivery. So what did this actually mean? It mean the bank advised and sometimes even forced poor countries to scale back the involvement of the public sector in health through cuts to the health budget and health workers, while also encouraging revenue generation through user fees at the point of care. Um, and so in a sense, you see some of these solutions coming up again in the negotiations um, in Greece and um, in, in Spain, and basically trying to um, reduce the public sector through taking hits to health workers who work in, that, in, in, in the public sector and, th and thus moving health into the private arena, which we know is, can lead to um, highly inequitable access to care. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so given that you know Greece and uh, 
Spain are, are that's fairly recent in in history. Um, is that something that is that sort of worldview still ascendant at the bank, or, or has um, Jim Kim's tenure started to change things there? Uh, Jim Kim has actually changed that and spoken quite widely that user fees were a mistake and that there have been mistakes made in the past by the bank. He's, I think, at heart a medical doctor, an activist, an anthropologist who's argued for the right to health. So, for example, they're using instruments to reverse that. For example, um, they have a project called the Health Results-Based Financing Project in Zimbabwe, where they're actually providing grants to local health facilities that remove point-of-care user fees. So actually, there has been a major shift. You've also seen more high-profile um, uh, high initiatives coming from the president's office for health. So, for example, in our in the series, we talk about the global financing facility, which many seem as the main instrument to achieve maternal, newborn, and child health in the coming years. You're seeing a big focus on universal health coverage, which the second paper in this series discusses in more detail. And finally, um, the bank taking on a leadership role in health outbreaks and emergencies through its currently proposed pandemic emergency financing facility, which the last paper in the series discusses. And all of these are done through a modality called trust funds, which is, seems to be um, increasing in importance of how the bank wants to do its work. And we discuss this and try to break it down and make it um, more accessible in the second, um, in, in the third paper of our series. And so, um, yes, I think there has been a major shift in just how he addresses health issues through having the bully pulpit of being president. Mm. Um, I mean, it's interesting what you said there about the fact that this was... Um those particularly free market solutions that he was critical of came in the 80s um, and the 90s in the sort of height of Reaganomics. And that's been something that's been said about the bank, that, you know, the bank's worldview really reflects Washington's um, worldview. Now, given your deep dive into all the data here, do you think that's true? Yes. So um, you cannot um, overstate the importance of United States and the World Bank. It's the largest and most influential country in the bank. The U.S. speaks on virtually every issue that comes before the executive board, the main governing body. The president of the World Bank has always been an American. The U.S. is the only country to have individual veto power over decisions made. And the U.S. has used that, um, the avenue um, to reduce or withhold funding or the threat to reduce or withhold funding to demand changes in policy for the entire institution. And so you see this now, for example, in um, a new administration in the States who's not that interested in aid, but more interested in um, a global market system, same in the UK. And so President Kim has outlined recently in a speech to the London School of Economics his vision for the bank to use its knowledge and capital to serve as an honest broker between the interests of the market system, emerging country governments, and people in poverty, thus fitting into that new language and this new world of um, you know, development through trade rather than development through aid. Mm. Um, and I mean, you look at global health, and and you've you've got a good idea about how these things are affecting it. Do you? What do you think of that? Does that worry you, or or are you fairly sanguine about it? Well, I think um, to give a teaser, it's worth listening to the other podcasts and the papers in detail because I think it depends on where you're looking. I think. 
um, as Felix will talk about in his podcast, there are some concerns around the pandemic emergency financing facility of what does this actually mean um, for um, people around the world as their moral hazard associated with these kind of instruments. Whereas Genevieve talks about with the global financing facility, how this could be an incredibly innovative and exciting instrument for achieving aims that we've been trying to get to for decades. So I think it really depends on the problem. And that's what we generally try to do with the series. There's a lot of polarization around the bank. Either people who are kind of pro-bank, who see the free market as the solution to everything, and then those who think the public sector needs to deliver everything and that the private sector should stay out. And we try to find a middle ground in our series between these two and say it really depends on the issue area, the governance that's set up in that issue area to deliver a particular solution and looking at it really in detail. Um, and that's what we try to do. So it's um, we kind of fall in the middle of the spectrum, I would say. You mentioned governance there. And I think having done all of these interviews, um, that's something that comes across in this series, uh, the, the, the call for good governance and, and transparency. Now, to do this whole series, you had to, as I keep saying, do a deep dive into this data yeah, to talk to people. Um, how easy was it for you to kind of access the information that you wanted to get? Um, to the bank, to the World Bank's credit, they do have a progressive access to information policy, which means if you are looking for financial data on what is funded through the health, nutrition, and population portfolio, you can get that online and download it in a pretty um, um, good format. Um, same for the independent evaluation group reports. So real credit there, and including the visits to the archives. They've been incredibly transparent on letting us have access to those documents and working with us on our many requests. Where you see less transparency, and this is highlighted in Janelle's um, paper and podcast, is in trust funds. Trust funds don't operate under the same access to information policies as the rest of the bank, which means it's very hard to get good data in this area. And this is where we actually have inserted... Um, a table with specific recommendations of what we think could be improved to help researchers like us and general public or people sitting in government understand better that side of the bank. Um, so I guess it's it's for the core bank that falls under access to information, very positive on trust funds, more mixed. Um, and I'll give, I guess, a plug for my new book, which is called Governing Global Health. And we have a chapter in there which is specifically comparing the transparency of the World Bank to the World Health Organization to Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, and to the Global Fund to fight HIV, TB, and malaria. And we find actually the bank is doing pretty well, and there's much that the World Health Organization can learn from what the World Bank has done in this area already. The other thing uh, that all of the articles talked about was governance. And um, I mean, here, there's part of this series, you are kind of trying to, to take a, a, the temperature of the World Bank and, and see what's going on. Um, do you think increasing governments over the World Bank is important, giving it, you know, its increasing um, status in, as a as a funder of global health. Yeah, I think it, there needs to be both an acknowledgement and recognition of how important it is in global health. It is the largest funder of health within the UN system and the second largest overall, just behind the Global Fund to fight HIV, AIDS, TB, and malaria. But I think also there needs to be scrutiny um, over new initiatives and instead of accepting everything that comes out and saying this is fantastic, actually looking at which are the ways that it's great and what are the ways that it could be better. And that's something that we try to do in every single one of the articles is that we're not trying to be critical for the sake of being critical. We're being critical for the sake of actually making recommendations, practical recommendations of how it could be improved. 
And I think that's hopefully something that the bank would appreciate, but also welcome that there are actually teams out there, researchers who are devoting months of their time thinking of how things and policies and programs and instruments could be one step, um, one step better and supporting them and their efforts. Great. Well, um, as we've said throughout this, if you're interested in the World Bank, you should definitely go and listen to the other podcasts in this series. Um, but until then, uh, Debbie, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Great. Thanks very much. You've been listening to Devi Sridhar talk about the World Bank's move into financing global health. The article to accompany this interview, plus all of the others in the series, and all of the podcast interviews, are now available on bmj.com. If you've enjoyed this, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. We're available in most places now. There you'll also find over 200 previous episodes, all available for free. Thanks for listening.